Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you know you're in the right place. What's the buzz today on the street? Step on it, driver. No, we're not doing a show about taxis and Uber. Let me tell you more. The pace of innovation today is nothing short of perpetual acceleration. I think I'm going to coin, copyright, trademark that phrase. Perpetual acceleration. That's what we're going to talk about. New ideas, new products, new services are being brought to market faster than ever before, and their life cycles are shorter. Ooh, that means you got to jump on it, get that market share, and then poof, it could be gone in time to create something new. What about consumers? They are demanding more speed, more simplicity in everything you do. They're online. They find you everywhere. They do their research. They're out there when they're looking and your competition is thick all over the world. So what's the impact of all of this perpetual acceleration? Average businesses and our listeners, you may be in what we call an average business. Maybe your business is just doing okay, surviving. Best-in-class companies, you know, the ones you aspire to be. And entrepreneurs, those people who bravely jump into the fray and say, we have a great new this or that, and we're going to steal market share. They're all trying to leapfrog over each other when every day, every minute, they want a piece of that market share, that wallet share. They want to be in the game, and they want to do it for the long term. So. Look at the pool. Look at the population of businesses. Who will survive? Well, we have something to say about that. Successful companies are internally organizing, designing, and implementing programs and processes to keep up with and leapfrog enough to get ahead of the shrinking innovation cycles. I have a panel of three experts who are going to help us figure this out. You should go away with some really good insights and maybe some advice you can actually use. And a shout out to all of our listeners all over the world and a shout out to David S. Fowler at SAP who has been sponsoring this series for my goodness. I think we're in season five now. Uh, season four or five, I've lost track, but it's like 50 or 60 or a thousand shows. So shout out to Dave. I know he's listening. Now, let me tell you who the panelists are, and then we'll get started. We are going to welcome in a moment Jeremy C. Thomas, the founder of Carom, C-A-R-O-M. We're going to welcome Jennifer Ford, Executive Director for North American Presales Design Thinking Team at SAP. Design thinking is the key. That's why she's here. And we're going to welcome Charlotte Bui, B-U-I, if you want to look her up, Head of the Global Design Thinking Team at SAP within the office of the CEO. That's how important it is. Yes, it is. So let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy C. Thomas, he has sent us a quote from Kobe Yamada. K-O-B-I Yamada. I had to look this up. Kobe Yamada. And there's an excerpt. The quote I'm going to read you in a minute is an excerpt from his book. Excerpt from his book, What Do You Do With an Idea? He's the president and creative powerhouse behind a company called Compendium Inc. It's a custom publisher creator and distributor of inspiring sustainable gifts and greeting cards. There's that wonderful word, sustainable. He does them independently and for some of the world's most remarkable brands. And let's see, he says his company is a company of amazing people doing amazing things. Uh, he and the company have won numerous industry awards and his lust for life, ex he exudes it on a daily basis. He has a business savvy and a philosophy and philanthropy that few entrepreneurs in Seattle, that's where he's based, even know. 
Uh, what do you do with an idea is a story of one brilliant idea and the child who helps to bring it into the world. And it's so inspiring, I read on Amazon, that people buy it for their kids and they say, uh-uh, this is for my grown-up friends. This is for my business friends. This is for people I know with great ideas. And they buy more and more copies. Here is the quote Jeremy has selected. It showed me how to walk on my hands because, it said, it is good to have the ability to see things differently. Jeremy C. Thomas, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for joining us. Are you a big fan of Kobe Yamada? I've never heard of him, and I was fascinated. Tell me a little bit about how you picked this quote, and how does it have to do with our topic? Sure. I, um, I, I think I fall directly into the story you just told. I have a five-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old, and uh, when I was in the bookstore one day, I saw the book, and of course, being someone who practices design thinking and works in innovation, I was curious, you know, what's this book about ideas? And mm-hmm. as I flipped through the pages and I saw the story they were telling about this little boy with his idea and how he had to overcome the, um, had to overcome the, the negative uh, ideas of those around him, that his idea was bad, that it would never work, mm-hmm. and that he shouldn't even try to do it. And then at the end, the idea changes, and it, it, it does. It teaches him about how to adopt the idea, how to believe in it, how to care for it, uh, and then uh, eventually how to then make the idea real. And I think given the space that I work in and, and being in this inspiration and innovation area, I thought that was really critical, not only to educate my five-year-old, who I think it's very important. I want him to think this way. I don't want him to have barriers and, and issues with trying to do something that's different. Uh, and that's specifically why I chose that particular quote, is I think it's really the best one, because I find that our, um, I guess, our experience and our education teaches us to see things one way, and what mm-hmm. we really have a hard time with is seeing things in a different way. And that's where the empathy that we create in, in something like design thinking, to see something from someone else's perspective is one of the most critical aspects of, of really developing an innovation approach to get us out of our comfort zones. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. And uh, Jeremy, I, I applaud you for seeing that the expansion of the book, as I read on Amazon, the expansion of the book to, to adults. I think that's the beauty of when somebody writes something that's bigger than what it seems. What do they say? Don't judge a book by its cover. Um, one comment here I read in the review, it said, this is a story for anyone at any age who's ever had an idea that seemed a little too big, a little too odd, a little too difficult. That really says it all, doesn't it, Jeremy? It does, it does. And I think I saw recently, there's, he has a new book, What Do You Do With a Problem? And I haven't purchased that one yet, but I'm excited to see um, if it's this, you know, similar as impactful as What Do You Do With an Idea? And I think he's got one on what do you do with the with problem. Was that the one you just said? Because I, I saw that out there yeah. as well. Do you know that he is uh, – I was, I was thinking about something else. I apologize for that. Uh, Kobe Yamada is so important and so well-known that he doesn't have a handle. He's got a hashtag. So I'm putting that into, into the tweet here. Now live, Jeremy C. Thomas quotes Kobe Yamada, and I'm putting the link to the show, the live show. So there we go. Thank you, Jeremy. Pleasure to have you on board and looking forward to a lot more from you. And now let me introduce Jennifer Ford, Executive Director for North American Presales Design Thinking Team at SAP. And Jennifer has picked 
picked a wonderful quote. I think it's a classic from Steve Jobs. He said it in 1997. I don't think there's anybody on the planet who doesn't know who Steve Jobs was, and I know for a fact that he passed away on the day we debuted our first Game Changers radio show, our main series, Coffee Break with Game Changers. That was October 5th, 2011, and we got the news just after we went off air. A little piece of trivia here, Jennifer. You may not know about Steve Jobs. He dated Joan Baez after she'd already had a relationship with Bob Dylan. I don't know if anybody knows that. I don't know if it was in the movie. He attended Reed College very briefly in 1972 before dropping out, and then he traveled through India in 1974 seeking enlightenment and studying Zen Buddhism. And he once told a reporter that taking LSD was one of the two or three most important things he ever did in his life. Now, here's let's get back to business here. Too much fun. Uh, the quote that Jennifer has selected from Steve Jobs, you've got to start with the customer experience and work backwards to the technology. Aha. Jennifer Ford, welcome. How are you? Welcome. I'm great. And I've got to think that uh, in addition to uh, taking LSD, that dating Joan Baez might have been one of the other one or two things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you are good. That That was a beautiful thing. That was great. Thank you, Jennifer, for that. Now, tell me about this quote. Start with the customer experience. How does it relate? We're talking about designing innovation. We're talking about design thinking. We're talking about this perpetual acceleration of everything moving so fast. So why don't you tie it all up for us today? Absolutely. So, you know, it's been really interesting for me as I've gone through my career. You know, when I came up through the ranks working with uh, a lot of our different customers, especially in manufacturing, you, you know, became very well acquainted with Kaizen, you know, business process review, looking at, you know, every elemental detail of how people did work. And what's really exciting to me today is what we're looking at is what are the outcomes? What, you know, we're fundamentally changing how we're looking at business, how we're looking at how businesses interact with their customers. Businesses are having to look at what their customers' needs are. They aren't just taking into consideration or establishing a norm that the product that I have is what you want, you know, and, and I'm now going to look at how I manufacture that in order to ensure that it's the cheapest, at the highest quality that I possibly can, and push it to you. Companies are having to look at their customers, analyze what their customers' unmet needs are, and in every aspect of their business, taking that point of view, taking that method of, am I creating outcomes that provide value, provide value for my customer? and provide value for the organization overall. So it's not just a matter of dumbing down tasks or creating products for the sake of creating products. It's actually looking at what's the intended outcome. Is somebody going to like this? Are they going to find value? And is this value for my organization? Thank you, Jennifer. And I'm thinking that uh, going back to a very basic phrase, it's not all about you, right? It's not about the company. It's not about... It's not about you. Think about to whom you're sending or serving or providing the service of this product. What do they want? What do they need? And I, I think Steve Jobs might have said something about um, you have to anticipate what they – somebody said it, you have to anticipate what they want before they even know what they want. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And is that where design thinking comes in, Jennifer? It is. It is because it's, it's looking at people. It's analyzing what they do, how they do it, and, and they don't know – 
necessarily to tell you this is what I need. All they can tell you is this is what's not working for me. And so you have to analyze what's going on, see where people are sensing frustration, and then work to create a solution that will, you know, stem that frustration and and create a beautiful experience for them. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Pleasure to meet you. And now let me bring on our third panelist. She is Charlotte Bowie, BUI, head of the Global Design Thinking Team at SAP within the office of the CEO, and I'm impressed by that. Charlotte has sent a quote from Tom Kelly. I had to look him up. Name sounded familiar, and it's spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y. And I thought, huh, where do I know that? Well, Tom Kelly, still with us, born in 1955, is an American business consultant, author, and public speaker globally recognized on... As an expert on innovation, design thinking, organization design, and similar business topics. But here's the deal. He is the general manager of IDEO, I-D-E-O, a design and innovation consultancy founded by his brother, David Kelly. And they say that Tom Kelly joined the firm back in 1987 and helped it grow from 20 people to its current size of 500. 50, 550 people plus. Uh, as a public speaker, Tom Kelly gives talks all over the world to audiences ranging from 10 to 20,000. That's 10,000 to 20,000 people a year. Let me see what else. Uh, he was a management consultant. He won a National Merit Scholarship. That doesn't probably mean a lot to too many people, but I remember those back in the day. I don't know if they're still around. So here is the wonderful quote from Tom Kelly that Charlotte Bowie has selected. The history of discovery is full of creative serendipity. What a pretty quote. Charlotte, how are you? Good morning, Bonnie. I'm doing great. I love the quote. Tell me, are you a big fan of IDEO, of David, of Tom? How did you come across a quote from one of one of the Kelly brothers, I'll just say? I have to be honest. There's two reasons why I actually gravitated towards the book, Creative Confidence. Uh, number one is just the reputation of Tom and David Kelly. Their inspiration, they're extremely um, ahead of their time in the way they think and approach problems today, um, but also because they're brothers. And I come from a family of four siblings, all sisters, and I have two boys of my own. And I just love the idea that they actually started this business together, that they wrote this book together, and you can hear both of their voices in the book around creativity, around innovation. And I found it incredibly inspirational. And I actually keep that book on my desk and make reference to it quite regularly. So I'm a huge fan of both David Kelly and Tom Kelly. And you know something, Charlotte, exactly to your point, I just looked up Tom Kelly on Twitter and the handle is the Kelly Brothers, K-E-L-L-E-Y-B-R-O-S, and they both got mustaches, and they look like twins, and they're sitting on on the stairs. It looks like it could be a a walk-up in Manhattan somewhere, and they're smiling very broad, very interesting. So tell me about this. Where does serendipity come in? Now, we're talking about designing innovation. That designing says to me a structure, a format, a purposeful uh, event, a purposeful process. Serendipity, that's chance, that's woo-hoo, that just happens. So how does it all fit together? Well, a lot of times people attribute design with a skill set that you're born with, right? Style and function, being able to create amazingly beautiful things. And if anybody had ever taken a moment and sat down and looked at any of my drawings, they would know that I'm so far from that that it actually doesn't make any sense to connect that to me. But I go into the world of design thinking, where it's about problem solving and problem finding. And that's where Tom and David Kelly talk a lot about how you can curate and create this skill to help you find solutions to problems that you think are unsolvable or ones that you didn't even know exist, to 
to uh, Jennifer's point earlier, we talked about, uh, she mentioned a little bit about not knowing, people not knowing the problems that they have. And so mm-hmm. Tom and David Kelly spent a lot of time in their book talking about how they work with people, empathy, stepping into the shoes of people, and then coming up with these ideas in short iterative cycles, taking chance, throwing things out. If you don't go broad, you're not going to come up with something that's going to go beyond the obvious. And that's a lot of what inspired me within their book, and that's why I chose that quote. Anybody can take a hand at design thinking if they practice, if they try the experience. And this goes so beautifully, Charlotte, back to the quote Jeremy Thomas picked from Kobe Yamada about the child with the idea. What do you do with an yeah. idea? I love it. We're all we're tying this all up. And this is, by the way, I must tell our listeners, this is serendipitous that our panelists are all on the same wavelength. Yes, we have a topic, but the quotes fit together so beautifully. So now I'm going to give them a little chance to tell us a little bit about who they are. Jeremy Thomas, why don't you just in one sentence tell us what your company, Karam, does. I know it's a skiing term. And then I'd love you to tell us where you're calling from and what's in your cup today. What are you drinking that will make us smile? Certainly. Thank you, Bonnie. Uh, so my name is, uh, again, Jeremy Thomas. My company, Carum, is a, uh, sort of a sort of an innovation practice. It's leveraging the design thinking methodology and philosophy behind it. And I love what Charlotte said. I also think it's very important that this is not something structured, but it, it requires a little bit of, of serendipity or, as, as we like to say, it's being present in the moment so that you can notice all the things that are there. Uh, and really what my focus is is working with both large companies and small in really helping them see things differently, approach their problems with a different eye, uh, and come up with solutions that might be unexpected, uh, but much more successful for them to overcome the leapfrogging that you were talking about earlier with innovation. Um, Thank and, you. Uh, and I think that's really important because disruption is happening ever faster just like innovation, and, and every company needs to watch out for it. Absolutely. Um, Where are you, well, and what are you drinking? Let's get innovative with you. What are you drinking? Yeah, Something so I'm special? I'm calling in from the Bay Area in California in a small town called Dublin, not the one in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have in my cup this morning a beautiful uh, full cup of Silken Splendor. Uh, Silken Splendor is a medium roast from a local... Uh, coffee roastery called Phil's, P-H-I-L-Z, coffee Mm -hmm. here in the Bay Area. Very nice. Thank you very much. And it's a little early for you, isn't it? Uh, 7.19 in the morning, yes? 7.19, Seven nineteen, and that's why it's important to have a really big cup of Silken Splendor first thing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jennifer Ford, where are you, and what are you drinking today, or what are you planning to drink after we're off the air? I am in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So that's uh, just outside of Ann Arbor. And uh, for any of you looking for it, it starts with a Y, not an I. I, I knew that. So, I was going to say that. Go ahead. Absolutely. So uh, home of the uh, of Rosie the Riveter and uh, the, the bomber plant. And uh, so we're, we're a proud manufacturing group here. And uh, at the end of the day, or at least close to the end of the day, I'll be having a Greenbush Dunegrass, which is a, uh, a craft brewmaker uh, just, uh, just inside of Michigan. You want to tell me what that is? Sure. So Greenbush <laughs> is a microbrew. It's a, it's a nice, hoppy IPA that uh, it does not have uh, any Dunegrass in it, 
although they are located very close to the, uh, the dunes in Indiana on the far west side of Michigan. Thank you very much. That's a dune grass, and it's a microbrew. Is that what we call it? Yep, yep. Uh, I've got it's made it. Made by Greenbush. I've got it. I've got Dunegrass Barrier Brewing Company, Greenbush Brewing Company, yes, and you can find it at beeradvocate.com and Greenbush Brewing Company, just greenbushbrewing.com. Very interesting. Thank you for that introduction to that. I appreciate that. Charlotte, where are you? Yes. What are you drinking? Talk to me. Hey, Bonnie. So I um, hail from a small town called Chester Springs, Pennsylvania, and for those who aren't familiar with it, if you take a look at a map and you try to figure out where the population of deer tick reside, it's right where I am. Um, I wake up every morning with about 15 deer in our front yard. So, ironically, before this call, you would ask us to find a nice, quiet place to take it, and I have to be honest with you, I'm sitting in my garage, which is the quietest place in the house when you have two toddlers. So if I pass out from the fumes of the car or the um, <laughs> lawnmower, oh please, you'll know please, why. Charlotte, no, no, don't pass out. We need you, Charlotte. We you know need what? you. <laughs> I'm staying wide awake with two drinks, which I start every morning with, which is a cup of hot chocolate. I, for those of you who are laughing, because it's going to be 90 degrees out, it helps me keep my energy up. Wow. One is a bottle of uh, cranberry juice, and trust me. Don't shake the hot chocolate. Shake the cranberry juice. I've already mixed that up once before, and it's not hot. <laughs> oh, shout-out to David Fowler. Dave, I don't know if you've told me what you're drinking today. He usually tweets something, and I don't see it on, on Twitter. We're at hashtag SAP Radio. But, Dave, I want to say you've picked a very stellar and personality-plus panel today. Very interesting people. I have photos of, for my listeners, I have photos of my guests in my notes so I can see them. And today the three photos are all smiling and I'm, I'm sitting here at my desk waving to Jeremy and Jennifer and Charlotte. Their beautiful smiles are coming across through their voices and their stories. Thank you, all three of you. I am going to give you a real break now. And just so everybody knows, you're listening to the Future of Business with Game Changers Radio. We are live. It's Thursday, July 28, 2016. We're talking about the future of designing innovation. Why? Because if you have a company now, if you had one in the past, if you're dreaming about having one tomorrow or in the long distance future, you need to design innovation so it's part of your DNA, part of your structure, part of what you do. And as I said in the opening, the pace of innovation today is nothing short of perpetual acceleration. That's what we're talking about. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Justin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as business simplification, insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, business networks and supply chains, and the ever-present need for speed are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP Services. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. Indeed, The Future of Business is happening right now. Every time I end a sentence with a virtual period, the future is right after that, and it's already gone. I want to say thank you to all the people who are tweeting about the show today. We have our panelists. Jeremy C. Thomas is tweeting, and we have, let's see, we've got Charlotte Bowie is tweeting, and we have David Fowler, the sponsor of the show, is tweeting. We have DT Design Thinking with SAP is tweeting, and we have, let's see who else we've got. Jenny Ford, J-E-N-N-I Ford, SAP is tweeting, and yes, that's it. We've got a lot of tweets going on, and I'm tweeting on the handle SAP Radio, and we'd love if you have anything to say, a question, a comment, and a shout-out to Karen Geraldo in Canada. Uh, we'd love to have you tweet and make sure you include the hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now let's get back to our round table. And I'm going to start off with Jeremy C. Thomas. And Jeremy sent me the following in his notes. I think it's a good place to start. He says, reimagining how we work to encourage workforce engagement. And we've been talking and focusing on the consumer and the marketplace. He says, we are in the stage of digital transformation. And it's not about technology and software feature and functions. As an average worker whose day doesn't ever seem to change from the 8 to 5, he says. Jeremy says, I ask myself, why should I change? Why should I adopt something I'm not familiar with? I'm paid by punching the clock. I'm going to stop right there. And Jeremy, why don't you expand this for us? Then we'll invite Jennifer and Charlotte to chime in. Jeremy? Sure. Uh, thank you, Bonnie. So this is something that uh, I'm seeing more and more. And I, you know, I, I do this work on my own with Karam. Uh, and I also do um, envision workshops with a team at SAP where it's really about visualizing the future for a company and then working backwards, kind of the way um, uh, I think Jennifer's quote brought in. And what I'm seeing more and more is that, you know, digital transformation is, is a huge piece of, of what companies are trying to adopt. And, you know, when I look at it, the reality is that most of them already are digital, and the digital transformation is more about now getting to the point where they can change their business. And one of the biggest things in business that needs to be overcome is how we work. And I say that because, you know, I, I did a, a workshop just three or four weeks ago in Atlanta uh, with a number of, um, of different companies, as, including SAP and one of their customers, where we were talking about workforce engagement, because it's one of the pillars for SAP within the digital uh, transformation space. And what I found as we were going through the workshop is that there was always, it was this push to say, well, here's what you get if you adopt the digital software. And what I had to do was really convince them and, and stop them and say, look, this is not about changing the way we work. And so what we had to do was think, okay, take for an example a, um, a customer service agent. And mm -hmm. one of the teams did this and said, what would we change about the way they do their work that would help them engage and adopt to get the features and functions of the software that you'd like to support your company? And so what they did instead of talking about that is now we went into a mode of saying, okay, now how would we change the way they work? And they used a very similar concept to Uber to say, why mm -hmm. can't we have a more contingent workforce there that could have surge pricing when it's busy 
could log in when they want to do it, take the calls they want, and still provide the customer service. And that was a change. This is a new way to work based on digital transformation. Interesting. What comes first, the idea that you have to change how you work or the fact that you're adopting digital transformation and you'd better change? Just a quick answer from you before I get Jennifer and Charlotte in. Jeremy? It has to be the idea that that you want to have a vision for something else. Thank you. Very powerful. Jennifer Ford, let's get your POV on this. You know, I I agree with Jeremy. I, I still think that companies are trying to figure out what what does digital transformation mean to them? And and unfortunately, they look at outside their organization first and, you know, think, okay, I've got all of this data, all of this information. How do I use this outside of my organization? Whereas really the power of it is how can the data that you have about your knowledge of your customers, your knowledge of how your products work, what your products don't do, you know, and how they don't match up with what your customers need. How do you take that and how do you bring that inside? And how do you look at how the people work inside your organization in order to help them work better, to help them drive innovation in how they work and how they develop products faster, more innovatively, you know, looking at how, what the customer really needs and, that that needs to be the first, and that's a big part of the workshops that we do with our customers is getting them to think about the internal way to use the data. Very interesting. Very interesting. So that's saying the, the outward is coming in and reinforming, and as Jeremy said, helping the company reimagine what they need to do to give customers what you think they want to have that they don't know yet. Did I get that right, Jennifer? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, R&D teams, they, you know, they do a lot of research based on what they know, based on what competitors are doing, but they don't necessarily always take the data of what they already have coming off of the product that they have out there in the market to help them better, you know, work and to also better understand what, how the customers are using their products. Very interesting. Charlotte Bowie, love to have your thoughts on this. Join us. Yeah, of course. Um, so expanding on, on what both Jeremy and Jennifer mentioned, uh, I think it's really important that we come to a realization that the workforce is changing at a rapid pace. Um, mm-hmm. And we're thinking about at least 25 to 35% of our workforce are now contingent workers um, versus just having full-time employees that were so used to 10 or even five years ago. Um, so the ability to manage both those different categories of workers and, to Jennifer's point, giving them access to the right information, to the right data that can help them then serve their customers better, that completely changes the game. That completely changes the way they engage and work with their end customers. Whenever we work with customers, we most often find that they want to focus on the outside customer, which is extremely important. But they also have to remember that their workforce, their inside uh, customer, if you will, their inside stakeholder is just as important. And being able to harness what it is that they can do for those workers so that they can make an impact to the end customer will really change the way that they uh, operate their business. Very insightful. Jeremy, you started a really good thread here. Do you want to wrap it up? Any comments on what Jennifer and Charlotte added? Really good. Jeremy? No, no and I think that uh, I, I appreciate their comments, and I think it's, it's 
really a huge issue, and I, I think the connection between the customer, the workforce you have, and the digital transformation of your company, just we can't ignore it, and that's why design thinking is, is being adopted at such a high rate. It's because it is a way to connect those things in a, in a tangible and actionable way if you really look at it from the perspective of the future and, and that we, we are changing and we need to either embrace it or potentially be disrupted and die. This is, this is what companies need to be thinking. Yep, and Bonnie, absolutely. This is Jennifer. Yes, please. I'd mm-hmm. like to add a little bit. You know, I think that because the biggest piece, you know, with the, with the thread running through this is, Bonnie, you're, you're really good at radio because you've been in radio. When you think about for an organization to consider bringing in contingent workers that have mm-hmm. not necessarily worked in their industry, they better have a pretty good handle and a pretty good methodology of bringing these contingent workers in in order for them to actually realize, you know, that the work being able to be done and the time frame that they think that it needs to be. So these people need to be ramped up. They need to be capable and competent of doing the job because contingent workers are moving from job to job to job across industries. So if you don't have a way of working that people can pick up very quickly and feel Mm -hmm. like they're valued as a part of the organization, you know, they don't have the history of how your company works. So you'd better be able to make that very easy for them to consume, for them to be effective, and the organization to realize the cost reduction. Very interesting, Jennifer. I was going to start a new thread here with you, but I have a question for you. Isn't there also an opportunity when you bring in, I'm putting quotes around contingent workers, to have them contribute new ideas and innovative ways of looking at things without maybe being disruptive in a certain way they're invited to be? In other words, well, you've got experience in XYZ, we've got experience in ABC. What can you bring to the table? Is there that opportunity for contingent workers? Are they just seen as, okay, you're here for six months, do your job, we'll make it easy for you if we can, and then go home? What's your point on that? that, That's that's a great entree into a major component of the design thinking mindset is just like you're talking about bringing contingent workers in and asking them for their perspective about how work has been defined, you know, was this easy? Did, were you able to catch on? Mm-hmm. Have you seen work done, you know, similar work done other places that was easier, that had greater value to the end customer, whether that end customer is internal or external? You know, mm-hmm. what was different that we can learn from and we can make our, our processes more valuable to our end customer? When we do workshops with our customers, we actively work with them to say, okay, if if we want to look at a problem that is within the manufacturing space, we need to have members of manufacturing team, the R&D team, the procurement team, the finance team, and customer Mm -hmm. service be a part of this workshop because everybody in those teams are either affected by or have an effect on the manufacturing process. So they all have a perspective, and they can bring different ideas to the table. So it's it's really important to be able to harness those different ideas. Thank you very much. Before I go to some of your notes here and your, your statements you sent me, I want to go around the table and, and see what we have from Charlotte and Jeremy on what 
we just serendipitously discussed Jennifer. So Charlotte, any thoughts on bringing outside ideas in from perhaps a, a temporary workforce who may have come from a different industry, a different way of working, and can mm-hmm. A, reflect on how easy it is to adopt your processes, and B, what they think could be done better or differently, or any brilliant ideas, any gems? What's your thought, Charlotte? So the interesting t- uh, word that just popped into my head when I was listening to Jennifer speak was crowdsourcing. Um, ah. We were quite familiar with that term just a couple of years ago. It ebbs and flows when you hear people talking about it. But the reality is when we're doing a design thinking engagement, we're almost like we're crowdsourcing. We're bringing in perspectives from different people and people who say, I have a voice in this. I have something to share with you. They know one person has all the answers. And that's why design thinking is not about that single superhero. It's about a collaboration. And it's not just a collaboration within our own organization. So within SAP, we certainly don't go behind a wall and do design thinking to help solve a problem for a customer and then come back and say, ta-da, here's your solution. (laughs) What we do is we sit down with the customer. We collaborate with them. So in the same way we talk about bringing in insights from other people within the workforce, a contingent workforce, we're bringing in different perspectives outside in. And so that, that, that thread follows through perfectly with what we do in a design thinking mindset. We basically crowdsource from people internally, people externally, people who've worked other jobs to bring in ways to make what these businesses do better or do differently. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Going around the table, thoughts from you on this, and then we'll move on. Go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, great to follow these two. They're um, full of of brilliance. Um, (laughs) I think that one of the things that I uh, really kind of have seen and, and experienced in, in discussing this topic is, I mean, look, if, if you're able to move from that, that world where you're stuck and you're working eight to five and you mm-hmm. think that, you know, you have ideas and, and as Charlotte and Jennifer both are saying, that you have a perspective of things you're doing, whether you're a part of that or not, you do. But when you're stuck in the rigmarole of the everyday that hasn't changed in, in 50, mm-hmm. 60, 100 years, you don't have as much incentive nor as much time to actually bring those things to the fold. And by moving to a model where it's more based on a contingent arrangement, if it's set up correctly, as Jennifer pointed out, that allows them the freedom and the time to innovate even more on not only the job role they have, but potentially on others. And it gives that ability then to, 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 to crowdsource on other things because now you're more efficient, you're more effective, and you have time and inclination to make things better. And that's really what this is all about. How can we make it better? Thank you. I'm, I'm hearing a thread here. The thread would be change and culture. Top down. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, just quickly from you, uh, this has to come from the very top of a company to say, yes, we want your ideas. Yes, we will listen to you. Yes, if they're good, we will implement or at least explore them rather than would you just do the damn job and be done by five and hand in your paperwork. It's a total change from the way companies used to be run. Jennifer, thoughts? Absolutely. It, uh, it is something that we've seen across all of the organizations that we work with. It's, it's hard but they believe in it. 
Okay, Jennifer, now, thank you. I'm going to go to, uh, there was a little detour there. We have plenty of time left. Jennifer, I'm looking at your notes, and I'm, I'm going to put together a couple of points here into hopefully a, a more powerful one from me and see what we come up with. You say, why not and what if are two powerful questions. They need to be part of the culture of any size organization that is committed to a transformational path. Now, let me stop there and let me add another point you made. You say, as organizations... We have become more comfortable with trying something in a pilot. In other words, put it in a room, put it in a box, put a red bow on it, tie it up, and say, okay, we did a pilot. You're saying the widespread adoption of prototyping and minimally viable need to feel more normal to deliver value at a faster pace, going back to our opening of perpetual acceleration. Can you put these together for me, Jennifer? I think together they really, really pack a punch. So what do you think? I agree. And and I need you to look at my points before I... Uh put them on paper more often. <clears throat> um, has, uh, I read everything. I read everything. You, <laughs> you, know, you know a lot. I have to. You're all so smart. I, I have to keep up with you. So you've challenged me. Go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, we see this across a lot of organizations that, um, you know, there is some truth to say that some of the smaller organizations that we work with really have adopted this mindset of, you know, let's let's put something together and let's just get it out there. You know, let's have people look at it, have them touch it, and have them tell us what they like about it and what they don't. Large organizations that we work with sometimes struggle with that. They have a reputation. You know, they have a need to, to be perceived as whenever we put something out in the market, it's going to be the best it could possibly be. The best it could possibly be typically takes a lot of time. You know, it, 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 it has to go through multiple iterations inside. You know, they might take it out for a, a spin with people not knowing what it is, but, you know, providing some, some information back on it. But companies need to either, you know, become more comfortable with the fact that, yes, people are not going to like everything. You know, their Zima died fast for a reason. You know, sometimes things don't taste good. They don't feel good. They don't work well. Um, but that's okay as long as you take the input and you do something else with it or you find a partner that can help you do something with it that make it what people actually need. But you are much better off of being able to understand what might be successful if you take the time up front to really understand what people need, what are they looking for that they haven't expressed that your product can deliver. Thank you very much. Very well put. And thank you for allowing me to combine the points and your kind words. Charlotte Bowie, we'd love to get you in on this. What do you think? What if and what did we say? What if and why not? And making taking away the idea of a pilot and putting that process into the normalcy of accelerated pace of innovation. What's your thought? I think it's really important to focus on the short iterative cycles that allows people to come up with these different ideas and these changes along the way. So if I can give a real quick example, um, we worked with this very well-known company, but out of respect for um, privacy, I won't won't name them, but um, I sat down with them and listened to their needs and came up with 
uh, an approach that helped them answer one of their questions, but I didn't do it behind the computer. I didn't sit there and program and said to them, all right, let me get back to you in about six to eight weeks. I have something totally baked for you. Instead, I took a piece of paper, drew out some of the thoughts on on that paper, and literally taped it to my hand so that they could Mm. see how this would look and feel as an Apple Watch um, prototype. And they literally drew on my arm as we were doing it and went through piece after piece. And this is quick iteration. If I had gone off, spent weeks and weeks creating this and came back and said to them, what do you think? Do you love it? It would be very hard for them to give me honest feedback. And at the same time, it would be very hard for me to take that. So to Jennifer's point, we really need a culture that gives us the ability to try things out in small cycles so that you're not baked into marrying an idea. And that's another core tenet behind design thinking. Don't get married to the ideas that you come up with. Don't get married to concepts. Be able to be flexible and make sure that you iterate with the people you're doing it for because otherwise you're just doing it for yourself and the answer that you give them is not the answer that they're looking for. I love it. Did you turn it? I have a silly question, Charlotte. Did you make it into a tattoo? Was it that good or did you just wa- did you wash it off? I, I'm visualizing this. That is powerful. That is really powerful. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm teasing. Off, even though it was yeah. sharpie, but yes, it did come off. <laughs> oh, good. Did you did you take a picture of it with your your uh, smartphone? Yes, I did. I actually was able to use this great app called Pop App, and I just took screenshots of it, and then I turned it into a working um, app. But again, it was it, it Pop App. It's it's so simple that you just take pictures as you go through, and it shows you what the app would look like in real life, but with these stick figures that I put in place. Thank you. And that goes to Jennifer's point. Why not and what if? You said, why not? Why can't I turn this drawing? Why can't I do the drawing on my arm, number one? Number two, why can't I capture it? Why can't I make it into something that will have a longer shelf life off of my arm? And what if I were able to do that? Think of the value. You really just live that. Thanks for the, we love the example. Jeremy, we got to get you in on the party here. Any quick thoughts on what the ladies have just said? Yeah, no, I would completely agree with um with charlotte and she really that going last is tough because i i was thinking about iteration as kind of the main thing that came into my head as as this discussion started and it really is you know the value of iteration and and taking this approach is um and the the low fidelity of drawing on your arm a prototype and and doing this to get a proof of concept is really that you you get to a faster uh, you have a faster time to value. So you can get buy-in and feedback so early on in the process that you know if you're going the right direction or not. You know if you need to change. And if you do need to change, you haven't invested a lot because you've done it in a l- very low-fidelity place. And so it makes it really easy to do the why not and to get out there and say, hey, customers, why not this? And they can tell you why or why not that, and, and you can really get that. And I would point everyone, if you haven't ever watched, there's a great video on YouTube on the origin of the how might we question, which is a technique we use in design thinking sometimes. And it's great because it, it actually goes through their uh, back. I don't know if, who remembers the soap Iris Spring, uh, but when Iris Spring no. came out, um, it was very Oh, yes, dominant. of course, of course. Yeah, in the soap market. <laughs> I thought you meant a soap opera, and I was saying I, I know a lot of them, but I didn't know a soap opera <laughs> called Iris Spring, but that would have been a good name for a serial on, on TV, yes. But it was a soap, yes. Yeah. So what were you saying about the soap? I agree. So, that, so when it was released, it was kind of, and, and the way he describes it is it was the iPod of soap, right? And everyone was buying, and it was super popular, and there was a big company, uh, P&G, that wanted to unseat 
Irish Spring by coming out with their new, their own soap. And so they went through the traditional approach, which was to, to develop a better soap than, than Irish Spring. And they spent months and months, and they would do a blind taste test, or, or, or I guess smell test in this case, and they could never beat it. And they would not release a, a product unless it could beat the best one in the category. And a guy came in, and he did this kind of reframing with the how might we question, and instead of six months, they actually came up with the idea for Coast Soap, which was a different soap from a different oh, perspective yeah. than Irish Spring, but it showed the value of having this really quick iterative approach to reframing and understanding to get to something of value much faster and something very successful. It didn't beat Irish Spring, but it gave it a pretty good run for its money. And it passed the very. test. <laughs> I remember them both. I remember Coast. I, there was something very exciting about the scent of Irish Spring. I remember it very well. I want to make sure we have a, a little bit of time here before we go to predictions, which are coming up in about three minutes. Charlotte Bowie, I'm looking at your notes here. Let's see if we can find something that we didn't cover already. Um, let's talk about, you want to talk a little bit more about the workshop approach or, I don't know. I know where I want to go. Oh, I want failures. to go to the word failure. Oh, great minds. I was going to say when we were talking about what if and why not and embracing that in the culture and the mindset of change and acceleration, I was going to say we all know the phrase fail fast, fail often, and I meant to bring that up. So, yes, just talk to me, and we'll just have time for you to cover this, and then we'll go back to Jeremy for predictions. So, Charlotte, failure is often a part of the journey to successful innovation, and the concept of fail forward is well known to most. What, what's your expansion on this? What's your philosophy? So referring back to Tom Kelly and, and many of his great writings, it, he actually said that really good companies, they, they, they embrace a culture of what he called mini-failures. And mini-failures are where you're, as we were mentioning earlier, trying things out, moving forward from when they're trying things out. So instead of going forward with something big and then having a problem and then giving up completely, these failures are always about learning. So I recently read an interesting uh, Forbes write-up about the reality behind Fail Forward and where the writer said, let's be honest, right? People in Silicon Valley, they're not out to fail. And we're not out to try and do projects just so that we fail. We try to succeed. But what we need to do is accept that failure does happen and then learn from those failures so that we can continue moving forward. So back to that example with the little prototype on my arm. Again, the very first one I tried out with the customer, they looked at it, they smiled, and they said, we're not quite there yet. Now, that to me is what I call a mini-failure in that I didn't quite get what they were trying to, to accomplish or what they needed, but I took each step forward. And so I think it's really important in using in design thinking. We often say there's no bad idea, and mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of really kind of crazy off-the-wall ideas. Um, but if we don't try things out, we'll never know if they would work or not. And so... Um, and forgive me for coming up with these, referring back to these quotes, but one of my favorite ones is when Thomas Edison talked about, um, you know, his experiments with light bulbs, and he said, I've not failed. Um, I've just found 10,000 ways that just don't work. And so it's just looking at failure differently. It's looking at ways in which we can use failure to move forward. Moving failure to move forward. I'm sensing... I don't know how Dave Fowler feels about this, but this is such a good conversation and we're almost out of time. I'm thinking that I'm going to uh, invite the three of you to bring this topic part two onto our Coffee Break with Game Changers flagship series, and I'd like to continue it. And I think we might title the show something about failing forward for success or for growth or innovation. What do you think of that, Charlotte? Does that be a okay title? Oh, for sure. Yeah, fantastic. 
You want to come back, the three of you? I hate to do this to you in public on the radio, but please say yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank you very much. This has just been really, really great, but we're not done. Okay, Jeremy C. Thomas, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. That's all I have. Predictions. I love the year 2020. It's almost here, but I can still hear Baba Wawa saying 2020. So, Jeremy, pick any time in the future and tell me what will be different about our topic, the future of designing innovation, anything we've talked about, what's going to change. 60 seconds. Jeremy, go. So I think in the next five years, and, and so that gives us a horizon out to, to say 2021 or so, mm-hmm. so maybe 2020. Uh, I, I really believe that there will be a huge cultural revolution within the confines of the traditional organization. I think that we will start to see really big companies rethink the way they organize, rethink the way they work. And the end result of that will be that we will 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 really increase product productivity again by a an, a a really huge amount because it will free people from the confines of kind of that traditional way, and, and I believe that that will start to happen. And the companies that aren't able to do that, we may see one or two go away because they're unable to make the change. Thank you very much. Let's go to Jennifer Ford. I can give you the same 60 seconds. Tell me what you see in the crystal ball, Jennifer. Well, what I see is uh, my coach Harbaugh of University of Michigan Wolverines taking design thinking into uh, the college environment and completely rewriting how college football works. And my Wolverines will be national champions within the next two years. I like the way you finessed that. You took the topic, you took sports, you took a passion, and you put it all together. Very well done. Charlotte Bowie, I'm talking to you. Predictions? I can give you, oh my goodness, you can get about 75 seconds. So take it. Take whatever you need, Charlotte. Uh, you are spoiling me. Okay. I know, I know. So in the next four to five years, uh, quite honestly, and, and pardon me for saying this, but I think that we won't be talking about design thinking as design thinking. That term should become innate in everything we do. We won't be talking about digital transformation. We will be talking about digital now. It won't be about where things are going. We will have already thought forward, and everything we're doing is that mindset that's baked into us. It's already in our DNA. And so when businesses are working, the cultures of large organizations are going to start shifting and that shift will have moved forward much faster than where we're seeing it today. Um, so when we talk about the rapid pace of innovation, if you can imagine it moving even faster, I think that we're going to look back to now and say, wow, four years ago you did that? So I really think that design thinking will be baked into everything we do. Digital will be part of everything every business runs. And, um, you know, that topic, I think, will completely change the way we look at how organizations and companies exist. But maybe Thank I'm thinking you. too far into the future. But we're going fast. So I think four to five years, maybe. We are. I'm, I'm thinking thinking back to my entry into the workforce as a marketing person for a, a major bank that has changed hands so many times. I don't even the name name even exists. I was in their downtown Manhattan office and I remember I was trying to bring some innovation. I don't think we even knew the word back then. When was it? This was the uh, the early 90s. Oh my goodness, be still my heart. And I remember being taken aside. I think uh, Jennifer and um, I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> Jennifer and Charlotte will appreciate this very quickly. Uh, I remember being taken aside and told that they didn't like the way I dressed because I had 
had some sparkles on my ja- my business jacket, and that wasn't acceptable <laughs> culture there. And I had a, um, a a male boss who asked me to stay late one night, and he took me into his office, and he said, "We really need to send you to a um, a, a style expert because you just don't fit in here." Now, I had just invented, uh, created from scratch a newspaper on newsprint that was a, for this global cash management division that was going out all over the world. I had done it from scratch on a printer in my office and writing all the articles and all the sidebars and interviewing people. And they, they still weren't happy that I wore a scarf in my hair because you didn't do that in those days. Charlotte, are you shocked? Are you shocked? And this boss who took me aside, he couldn't even keep his shirt tucked in. He was so sloppy. He said, we're going to have to have you meet with somebody who will help you figure out how you could look more the part because we have very high-end salespeople in this department and you just don't fit in. I was there the first one on the floor at 7.30 in the morning and I stayed till 7 at night and I had a two-hour commute home. It wasn't good enough. So there you go. So much for innovative thinking. It's time to change the culture and I hope to God it has. Listen, I want to say thank you so much to Jeremy C. Thomas, Jennifer Ford, Charlotte Bowie. You have been wonderful. You've been very generous with your ideas and your insights and I thank you and I will send you an invitation to appear on Coffee Break with Game Changers and David, I hope I have your blessing and a shout out to David Fowler and all the wonderful people. We have Michelle Ng at SAP and we have uh, Madukawo tweeting and a lot of other people. Thank you very much. Shout out to Justin and the Business Channel team and here is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Talk to you at 2 p.m. this afternoon on a new episode live of Think Big, Work Small with Game Changers. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.